Exodus 37. Tonight we're going to start a a mini-series looking at the life of Joseph, uh, the man whose dream came true, uh, looking at what we can learn from his life. If you were at a YPM weekend away um, probably three years ago, two years ago, looking today for inspiration here, you weren't there. Can't was there. Uh, no. Some people were at that YPM weekend, and uh, we, we looked at the, the character of Joseph, see what we could learn from him. So we're going to do that again. And so let's read uh, the introduction to his life in Genesis 37. Jacob, that is Joseph's father, lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Silpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the other sons. Because he had been born to him in his old age, he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up, rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said to them, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. And so he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering about in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. 
Now, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. And so his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Amen. This is the word of God. We, if time allows us, will look briefly at chapter 38 in a few moments. So Joseph, the man whose dream came true. It's a story uh, of a young man who went from the pit to the palace from rags to riches. It never loses its charm for old and young alike. Probably some of you could sing the soundtrack to the blockbuster theatrical extravaganza that is Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat or something to that effect. Uh, it's all the ingredients. It's got intrigue, sex, violence, etc. to guarantee its success as a blockbuster film. Um, as I reread the story this week, I thought, you know, it would make absolutely fantastic reality TV, wouldn't it? If you just get the cameras in on this, um, you could probably vote out the brother you hate the most. And I don't think it would be Joseph. It's probably one of the best known Bible stories, and yet it's one that reveals the very worst about sinful nature. And yet at the same time, it displays the greater purpose of God's sovereign and his providential plan in his saving grace for his people. Uh, there are two books I'd recommend to you if you want to study this story in more depth. The first one is written by Alistair Begg, and it's called The Hand of God. The other is by Liam Gollacher, not Gallacher, that's another guy altogether, but Liam Gollacher, he wrote Joseph, The Hidden Hand of God. Um, wondered about writing my own one and calling it The Sovereign Hidden Hand of God, but that's just taking it too far. Let's consider uh, just a summary of Joseph's life. Uh, the source is unknown, but it's not mine. It's not original. Uh, Joseph was a youthful dreamer, and his dream came true. He labored as a slave, but was faithful in hard places. He enjoyed the presence of God and won the confidence of his master. Joseph had physical beauty, but it was never a snare to him. 
Joseph resisted temptation. His godless mistress could not seduce him. He found grace to free from youthful lusts. Joseph was silent amid foul accusations and the appearance of guilt and unjust punishment. Joseph was unspoiled by sudden prosperity, and when days of honor followed days of humiliation, he did not yield to pride. Joseph, the interpreter of dreams, proved that, quote, prison walls do not a prison make. He acknowledged his dependence upon God for explanation, proving that he was not a mere dreamer, but an interpreter of dreams. And Joseph manifested a great wisdom, brotherly love, filial devotion, and utter submission to God. And you know, one of the most important key aspects of Joseph's life, I think, is that he knew how to return good for evil. Now, you and I may not be able to have all the gifts of Joseph, who is a type of Christ. He points us to the Lord Jesus. He's a, a foreshadowing of that which is to come in perfection when Jesus comes uh, as a human being. So we can't have all the gifts that Joseph had, but he certainly can cover all of his graces. We can't have his greatness, but we can certainly emulate his goodness. R.W. Moss says, I should have put this quote up for you. Um, try to listen carefully. A very high place must be given Joseph among the early founders of his race. In strength of right purpose, he was second to none. Whilst in graces of reverence and kindness, of insight and assurance, he became the type of faith that is at once personal and national and allows neither misery nor a career of triumph to eclipse the sense of divine destiny. Let me just repeat that last little phrase there. He allows neither misery nor a career of triumph to eclipse the sense of divine destiny. So often, uh, people stumble because they're impoverished, and it's a poor little old me syndrome where rather than focus on the goodness of God and His eternal purposes, they, they gather people around them who love to have little pity parties. Isn't this terrible what's happening to me? Oh, yes, it's terrible. Terrible, terrible. Or the other side of that spectrum is that somebody does have good looks, does have wealth, does have pr prosperity, does have a good career, and yet they're puffed up in their own pride and sense of self-worth and importance. Joseph neither allowed the misery or the career of triumph to eclipse that sense of destiny for which he was called. In Hebrews 11, verse 22, the writer there um, talks positively about the sense of personal and national identity that Joseph has. When he says, by faith, Joseph when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction about his bones. Isn't that incredible? Did you get that? The exodus is, is not even humanly in sight still. And as he comes to the end of his life, Joseph says, 
We're down here for a time, but this isn't our destiny. We're here at this moment in time, but this is not the conclusion of the story. And so he says to the people in Egypt, when you leave here, take my bones with you. Take my bones with you. He was so confident in the sovereign purposes of God. And I think that that is a test of faith. And it's a test of faith that neither depends upon a positive or a negative human response from those around us. Some of us are toiling to be good Christians because we're far too concerned about what other Christians or non-Christians think about us and say about us, either from a negative or from a positive perspective. You see, positively, other people may gather around you and go, you're swell, you're really good. And God looks in on your life and goes, you're not swell at all. You're really horrible. You're a sinner who needs to be saved by my grace. And yet other people can come to you and say, do you know what, you're a really horrible Christian. And God looks in upon your life and says, you're my precious child. And you and I need to hold not what men and women think and say about us, either from a positive or a negative perspective, as being of any importance whatsoever. We need to know how God feels about us in his sovereign purposes and in his grace. And so I see Joseph trusting the hidden plan of God, whether he's loved or loathed. Now, who doesn't like to be liked? But you know, in this life, there are times when that's just completely not going to happen. And you will be loathed. Joseph is not without his faults, yet he stands out head and shoulders above the other members of his family in spiritual, moral, and ethical matters. The story starts, begins when Joseph, as a young man of only 17 years old, and and that's relevant for some of you guys up the back there. You're young still, and you've got youth on your side, but you've also got youth against you. These are informative years. There are years that can be the making or the breaking of where you're going to head in terms of the way that you follow God. That's where it begins with Joseph. And he's leading a very privileged life. Now, the impression we get, or at least I get, of this young man is that he probably knows more about how to maintain his good looks than he does about what counts as a good day's work. Uh, I'm talking as an old bloke who's lost any looks he ever had, okay? But this guy's father, albeit out of love and good intentions, has pampered this son to the point of spoiling him. Have you ever noticed uh, how we use that word? If you're a parent or maybe a grandparent, because they're worse, I believe. They like to, quote, spoil their children or their grandchildren. But you know, even though they do that with positive intentions, spoil is not a positive concept, is it? Maybe you've used that expression yourself. I love to spoil my kids. 
Love to spoil my grandchildren. Love to spoil my friends. Why would you want to do that? That's abuse, surely. Spoiling something. Well, I know what you're trying to say by that, but you know, I could give you a list of people of whom it said their parents ruined that boy or girl as they grew up. Ruined them. Spoiled, ruined. Nothing positive about that. Joseph is a fine young man, and he is destined to become the second most powerful man in the world. But before he is anywhere near ready for the purposes that God has in store for him, there are 13 years of character building that will come in the form of, listen to this, particularly young person, because you may have to go on this journey. Maybe you're in middle age and God has got something for you in your old age. Maybe you have to go on this journey. Maybe you're an older person who thinks that your life work is finished. Well, the truth is you've never actually been really usable in the hands of God because you've never gone on this journey of preparation for what God wants to use you. And you have to go through the forms of rejection, suffering, betrayal, temptation, false accusation, several miscarriage of justice, wrongful imprisonment, unimaginable hardship, and bitter disappointment. Good stuff, eh? Well, it is. It's all good stuff in the hands of the sovereign purposes of God as he shapes and he molds Joseph for the task for which he's been born. But despite all of that, or maybe actually because of it, Joseph will emerge as a man of immense character. He will be gracious and forgiving. He will be a loyal and trustworthy steward. And he will be a savior both to his family and to many more besides. He had to learn to trust the hidden plan of God, whether he was loved or loathed. In uh, Genesis 37 and 38 here, we've got the stories of two of Jacob's sons. The first one that we've read here, chapter 37, describes Joseph's early life and his being sold as a slave into the household of Potiphar in Egypt. Chapter 38 tells us Judas' story and how he was a slave to sin in his own heart. There is a contrast, a stark contrast, between these two men. But I want you also to see in this there is a beautiful revelation of the sovereign hand of God at work, unseen behind both of these stories. And we're going to spend most of our time tonight looking at the first. Joseph, the favorite son. In verses 1 through 4, we have um, something of the account of Israel, of Jacob's love, a father's love. You see, since Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife and Joseph was born, uh, her firstborn son, read about it in chapter 30, it's easy to see why Jacob would have favored him in his old age. This kind of favoritism in a home is bound to cause trouble, isn't it? But where did that come from? You remember something of Jacob's own youth and informative years. He was one of twins. He was the second child born to Isaac and Rebekah. The first son, Esau, was rugged, a kind of outdoorsy kind of a bloke, a real hard-working man's man. Jacob was a stay-at-home, hang-around-his-mother's-apron-strings kind of a guy. He was a dreamer and a schemer. And his mother, Rebekah, encouraged him to dupe his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing of inheritance as the firstborn son. And so he stole, stole Esau's birthright. Now surely, 
you would have thought Jacob should have learned from his own painful life experiences that favoritism is not a virtue. But true to his sinful inherent nature, he too, like mother, like son, to one degree like father as well, shows favoritism towards one of his children. Now, you don't need me to lecture you on this. Uh, some of you had more kids than me, and you've probably raised your kids better than I have mine. But it's not wrong to love your kids, is it? But you know it is wrong to favor one over the other or others. It's actually one of the tests of leadership, even in the church. You see, since God does not show favoritism, neither can those who are appointed to lead show favoritism. So if you're one of these blokes, outdoorsy or otherwise, nominated as an elder, then we can expect you not to favor one of your children over the other. If you do, then you will not likely be able to be impartial when it comes to managing issues regarding church members or church governance. We're not to have favorites in our families. We're not to have favorites in the church. And yet, <laughs> you won't take a lot of convincing to realize that some Christians are just so much easier to like than others are. And yet, in all matters of governance and leadership, we have to remain impartial. Same when raising the kids. Joseph, at the age of 17 is helping with the sheep. Moses, at the age of 40, was sent back into the wilderness for another 40 years until he was 80, tending the sheep. 40 years of preparation for the task that God had him perform in leadership. So what about old Joe here? Well, at 17, his father makes him an ornamented, very ornate, tailored coat. Look back into the history of such things in that culture. What he's saying here is, Joseph, you're the boss. This is a badge of your leadership. I'm making you an overseer within the realms of all that I own and control. You're the boss. You're 17 years old. These brothers have been around for a long, long time, but you're the man. You're the one I favor. You're the one who stands out. I'm giving you the responsibility of leading. Jacob, the father, wanted to make Joseph a ruler before he had really learned how to be a servant. The result? Well, there's a couple of fairly obvious ones there in verses 4 and 11. First of all, Joseph's brothers hated him. Now, they're culpable. They're responsible for the sin of hatred. But surely Jacob has to take some responsibility in this. And they also envied him. Lessons here, too, from, for within our families in the church. Ephesians 6 and 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. 1 Timothy 5, verses 21 through 22. I charge you, Paul says to young Timothy, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions, listen to this, without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. 
Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. We've got a father's love, but it's a misplaced and distorted love in the way that it expresses itself towards his child. In verses 5 through 11, we've got Joseph's dreams. I, I don't know how many times, like me, you've read this story. Um, man, I, I have a huge amount of sympathy for poor old Joseph. Um, you see, these dreams came from God. There's no question about that, is there? He didn't make this up. He's not had too much gorgonzola and crackers for his supper. He's, these, are, these are inspired dreams. That there's no question. And there is certainly, I think, a hope in the assurance that one day he would rule. And that must have helped keep him going through the dark and testing days in Egypt. Um, note that the first dream has an earthly setting. It's pastoral in the sense that it's down on the farm. Uh, it's about sheaves. And then the second dream was set in heaven. It's about the sun and the moon and the stars. Some commentators, maybe they've pushed it too far, but I'm not sure they have. They, they reckon that this illustrates respectively to, well, first of all, Abraham's earthly children, i.e. the Jewish nation, but secondly, his heavenly seed, the church, since all Christians are spiritual sons of Abraham. You can read more about that in Galatians 3 and Romans 4. Joseph is a type of Christ before whom every knee one day will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. But the question here for me, and the question I think you need to think about, is that Joseph's brothers did one day bow down to him. You can read about that in chapter 42 and 44, 43 and 44. But was Joseph wise in the way that he shared about these dreams? How would it have come across to his brothers who really didn't like him anyway? You see, I think he's trying to be palsy with them here. God's given, he's, not, he's not just a big head. He's trying to get into that circle and he's going, Oh guys, God give me a dream. Do you want to hear it? And they're like, no. <laughs> well, you're going to hear it anyway because it's just such a good dream. You laugh at this. And they're going, no. Hate you, Joseph. Hate you. I think that some of us here will have sympathy for Joseph. And that while we can recognize his untempered nature and his youthfulness, he may have lacked the constraints of an older and wiser man. I trust that if you're a young Christian, male or female, that you've got an older man or woman in your life to help you with the sort of things that, that you will need to be mentored in and and, and steered in and corrected in. Uh, thinking back to my own youth and the way that I grew as a young Christian, I had a couple of guys that were just so wise. Um, they were so hard on me in terms of my spiritual life, but they were just so wise. There were times when I would just, with the impetuous nature that I had, I would just crack something off that I thought was a good thing to say. And every now and again, I'd get this, I can't do it because I'm not as wise as them, but they would just sort of look at me with this quizzical little smile. And they might have said, one day, son, when you're older, you'll realize how stupid you are. 
And it was just such a put down, but they did it so gently and so helpfully that I think that it would have been good for Joseph had his father gone, do you know, Joseph, I really do love you, but you are such a prat at times. You can be such an absolute class A pillock. We need that sometimes from people who love us. There is times when, you know, it's even further complicated about not just lacking the, the right self-awareness. The right self because we are given God-given stuff, but because we do lack self-awareness, it just winds others up and brings grief into the situation. Of course, there's a further complication because sometimes the God-given stuff isn't even for sharing with others. God might give you something, and you may have to bide your time and exercise great restraint. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn on you and tear you to pieces. Joseph will learn to guard his unfettered tongue even to the extent of not protesting his innocence against false accusations. Man, that's hard to do, isn't it? Someone has said something about you that you know to be incorrect. You want to put the score right. Look to Jesus, the one who kept quiet, even though falsely accused. Look to Joseph. He's going to learn how to do that. And he's also going to be able to hide his true identity from his brothers when they show up in the royal courts of Egypt. Now, just imagine if he was a sinful man at that point and sin ruled his heart. There they show up. Well, it's come up in time, isn't it? Hey, guys, Joseph here. Now you're for it. He wasn't like that. He will learn. But that's many, many years in the future. And there's a lot of painful growth to be experienced before Joseph is ready for that. And then thirdly, we come in verses 12 through 28 to his brother's plan. Now, although these brothers are, humanly speaking, culpable for this as atrocity, please don't miss the sovereign purposes of God at work behind this outrageous act of treachery and brutality. We're not told which of the brothers first suggested doing away with Joseph. Do you know, possibly it was Simeon who resented Joseph's uh, intrusion on the rights of the firstborn which would finally be taken away from Reuben. Uh, we know from chapter 34 that Simeon was crafty and cruel. And by the time we get to chapter 42, we see that Joseph is just a tad harsh on Simeon. Well, at any rate, the brothers were back in the region of Shechem where they'd gotten into trouble before. You can find out about that in chapter 34. And they plotted to slay Joseph. And it is to Reuben's credit that he tries to spare Joseph's life. But notice that he uses the wrong method to accomplish a noble deed. And so culpability again falls to him. God overruled the hatred of these men and Joseph was sold into slavery instead of being slain in cold blood. And I think there's a lesson there for you and me, isn't there? Beware of the subtle temptation to convince yourself that the end justifies the means. Gossip, backbiting, anonymous letters, all wrong all wrong. And yet suddenly we could convince ourselves that this is the only course of action that we have 
in order to address something all wrong. If you have sinned against another human being, you will need to apologize to them and ask for their forgiveness. But you see, once you sin in a sinful manner, then you're guilty of that sin. And you will remain guilty of it until you bring it out into the open before God and confess it, seeking His forgiveness and cleansing. The enemy of our soul, um, or maybe even just your own cowardice, may try to tell you that it doesn't matter. It was such a long time ago, and you should probably leave it well alone. But listen, let me tell you, as a pastor of, of some years' experience now, that unless you deal with that thing in the past whereby you willfully sinned against another, unless you deal with that appropriately through repentance and asking God's forgiveness, but also making an apology and or reparation to the person if they're still alive, that still has the power to affect your life now, and it will continue to do so in the future, maybe even to the next generation and beyond. So your kids and your grandkids could be affected by something that you won't deal with now. Remember that repentance is a gift. It's not a right. So treat it as so and make use of it while you may. You see, the whole key, the verse that is key to understanding Joseph's harsh treatment and consequently other people's harsh treatment of us is there in Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph will one day say, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for the good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So are you going through hard times? Have you been through hard times at the hands or maybe worse, the tongues of others? Then please, I plead with you, don't waste your pain. Lay it before God and silently, humbly trust Him and His sovereign hidden plan for your life. And then finally we see there in verses 29 through 36, a father's grief. Surely you can't feel anything but a sense of empathy for Jacob as these rascals come back from the wilderness and share their story, which bears very little semblance to the reality of what's taking place. Years before, Jacob had slain a kid goat to deceive his father, and now the sins of the fathers visit the generation where his sons deceive him in the same way. God cannot be mocked, the church in Corinth is told. We reap what we sow. Jacob spent the next 22 plus years in sorrow, thinking that Joseph was dead. He thought that everything was working against him. He says so in Genesis 42, verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. When in reality, everything was working for him, not against him. Romans 8:28 for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. 
So whether loved or loathed, right now or back then, God is working his purposes out for you. Do you trust him? God had sent Joseph ahead to prepare the way for Israel's preservation as a nation. What amazing, amazing sovereign grace this story is about. We will see more of Joseph's training and preparation in the school of adversity in a couple of weeks' time when we revisit this on Sunday evening in two weeks' time. But just before I conclude tonight, just a very brief look at another aspect of sovereign grace in the life of this dysfunctional family. We won't read the chapter. You can read it for yourself. Let me sum it up for you. Judah, sometime around all of this is happening. He gets married. Um, He has sons. The The oldest son gets married. That son dies, leaving Tamar as Judah's daughter-in-law. Within their culture, it's right that the next son, Ohan, takes up the responsibility of um, bearing a child with her. Um, He commits something that God sees as an unpardonable sin, and he too is slain. And Tamar is left without the possibility of having children. And then when Judah's own wife dies, after a period of mourning, Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and goes and sits beside the side of the road. And Judah comes along and he engages the services of what he thinks is a prostitute and he actually sleeps with his daughter-in-law. He wants to pay her for a service. He said, I'll send you a young animal. And she says, well, until you send that, I need some sort of token uh, to guarantor what you're going to do. So he leaves her with part of his own possession as a guarantee of what's still to come. Some months later, having sent the young animal, she's not there. She's already back in his household, by this time pregnant with his child. He gets to hear that his daughter-in-law has been committing an act of prostitution. He goes absolutely ape, flies off the handle, bring her out here and let's put her to death, is his response. And... um, She just says to him, well, the father of the child is the guy who owned these. And he sees his own belongings. Let me point out just a couple of things from that story, and you can read the rest of it in detail for yourselves. Chapter 38, by contrast of what we're to see in the life of Joseph, presents a sordid picture showing Judah yielding to the lusts of the flesh. Now, the lusts of the flesh are not just sexual things. They can have to do with power and position. They can have to do with wealth and finance. They can do with all sorts of things. But it's a sordid picture, and it's quite a contrast to Joseph's story of purity. When Mrs. Potiphar tries to seduce him, he is able to escape that by the grace of God. Judah, by his own lustful, wicked heart, sleeps with his daughter-in-law. Judah was willing to sell his brother for a slave, yet we can deduce from his behavior that he was a slave to sin. In John 8 and verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Anyone who gossips is a slave to sin. Anyone who speaks ill of others in a negative, critical way, is a slave to sin. Anyone who thinks it's clever to write anonymous letters to other Christians is a slave to sin. 
But you know, even so, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Romans 5 and 20. Romans 5 and 20 says, The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And you know, you see that in the story of Judah and Tamar. Because if you were to flip forward to the New Testament in Matthew 1 and 3, you'll see that this terrible act of sinfulness and wickedness accounts for how Tamar is included in the human lineage of Jesus Christ. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God's sovereign grace and purposes absolutely beyond our human ability to fathom at times? Note that Judah was harder on others, verse 24, than on himself. Like King David, he wanted the sinner judged until he discovered that he was the sinner. Do you know, again, pastoral ministry again has taught me that over a couple of decades now. That the person who comes and wants justice and wants justice and wants justice is probably a bigger sinner in their own heart than the thing they're complaining about. Listen, what goes around comes around. You may be blinded by your own sinful nature, but God isn't. Before you go about attempting to deal with the specks in other people's eyes, Pay some attention to the Douglas fir that's sticking out of your own. That's the message that Jesus is getting across in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? When he warns us against judging others. Look, we know that trouble will come. Jesus says, Matthew 18 and verse 7, Woe to the world because of things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come, man or woman. But how we respond to these troubles and to these woes will determine the resultant blessing that can come from it. So whether you're loved or you're loathed, you can trust the hidden plan of God. The story of Joseph confirms that. Indeed, more than that, the story of Jesus more than confirms that. Jesus is the sinner's hope. Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 18 following, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And then John 16, and verse 33, Jesus says to his disciples on the eve of his departure, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us pray.